Hi, and welcome back to another bonus episode of Finding Relisha. Thank you all for coming on this ride with me. Thank you all for helping out, taking your time and talking to me, listening to everything I have compiled. Thank you for caring about Relisha Rudd. Once you hear the story of little Relisha, you never are the same again. Once that story touches your heart, you're never the same again. You want to know where she is. You want closure. You want to bring her home. If I have done anything with any of these episodes, I hope that I have at least touched one person that's listened. I hope that at least one person now feels that intense fire to bring Relisha home, to get answers, and to solve her case. In all honesty, what happened to Relisha Rudd could happen to any of us. It's a matter of circumstance. We don't choose who we're born to. We don't choose where we're born at, what city we live in. People born into privileged families are blessed by just a happy chance. The story of Alicia Rudd has taught me not only things about myself as a human being, but it has also taught me to be grateful, to be content, but to always strive to be better so that I can help others. When this began, we had planned 10 episodes. Seven of them told Relisha's story. Three of them were bonus content on things that would either spark hope, could have been, or were problems in the narrative of Relisha's story. And one of them was the question and answer session with Trace investigator Henderson Long. Henderson Long is the one who pulled me into this in the beginning. He's the one who told me who Relisha Rudd was, and I'll be forever grateful for that. He and I have sat down and looked at all of the questions that you've given us over, you know, the past two months that we've been doing this show. We went through and we answered every single one to the best that we could. But as always, case integrity wins out. If there was an answer that we thought might compromise case integrity, we didn't answer it. If there was a question that we didn't feel comfortable with because it could come across as us speaking for other people, we tried our best to handle it in our own words and only speak for ourselves. Please keep those things in mind as you listen to this interview. R-E-L-I-S-H-A. Hello. Hey, it kind of seems unreal that we're at this point where we kind of come to the end of it and we're doing our question and answer session compared to when this first started. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, actually, the case never ends. It never ends. <laughs> it's never. It's an ongoing um, investigation, you know, from a maybe from a update standpoint we might hit a small standstill in terms of developments in the case. 
that's being put out to the public. But as far as the case and the, and the investigation is always going, and we're always in search of um, new information that's usable. You know, I know we um, have asked for listener questions, but there are some directed at the family, and there are some that we may also not be able to answer fully because of case integrity and also because we can't speak for the family. But we will do our best, and, you know, if, I, if the family wants to help, that's, that's them, that's on them. Yeah, absolutely. It's normal. It's a human thing to want to know, to want answers. I'm glad people are in that mode of demanding answers. And all we can do is provide answers to the best of our ability to answer the questions. But what we should do is remind people that finding religion is the ultimate goal, not our personal satisfaction. If 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 I had a choice to know some information now that may compromise the investigation and compromise us finding Relisha, finding her safe, or or holding those responsible accountable in court when if, if legal proceedings start, I would myself being a genuine person in this situation, I would yield to that. That out trumps everything. So, in one breath, I would say, yeah, demand answers. People have a right. That's human. They want to know. They want to know. Why y'all can't tell us? You know, tell us. You know, what's going on? Don't give me that, you know, case integrity stuff. People, it's normal. It's this child. These these are like hot button issues. When you go to West Virginia and you mention the word of taking their guns away, that's a hot button issue. Immediately, they don't want to hear anything else. So this is a hot-button issue because it's so sensitive because it's a child. It involved a child, and it involved a city that was responsible to um, safeguard her, to be there for oversight. And on so many levels, we all failed on every level. I mean, from the legislative standpoint, we could see – large gaps of time that went by before a trigger was set off to start conducting an investigation. And then during the investigation, the investigators didn't really have the same weight as police officers. You know, this stuff should be serious. When we conduct an investigation, whether it be criminal or non-criminal, because in the onset, we thought this was a non-criminal investigation. We thought that it was just a mild case of maybe a little bit of neglect, maybe Mr. Rudd was over here, maybe over there. But in hindsight, we kind of realize how serious this can be. So I think that there should be an earlier trigger to notify CFSA from a truancy standpoint. Um, a lot of days went by where Relisha missed so many days from school. Um, and... I think that no more handwritten letters, you know, from, from, from any for any reason. I mean, if you're out for a dog, that parent can write a letter, you know, write a letter or something saying the child is homesick. But as far as a doctor writing a letter, saying I'm a, I am a doctor, I'm a health care professional, she's under my care, that needs to come with a letterhead, formal letterhead, 
If not, it should be an earlier trigger. Because we may have caught wind of this a little sooner than what we did. But as I told you before, we all got caught with our pants down. We all, everybody, I think including the family, because I don't know whether they knew or what they knew. I really can't speak on that, what they knew about, what they didn't know about, what they are culpable of being a part of. I couldn't say that. I couldn't say they knew. I could just say that any parent or any person who who dropped, maybe feel as though they dropped the ball, could possibly feel they dropped the ball when they child, they probably feel ashamed. They've been ridiculed by the public. You know, it looks bad. It looks suspicious. You know, and, and when people are under certain circumstances, and as I told you about the family dynamic, you know, the history of their struggle and their plight, their way of life, we all deal with things differently. And people are not so forthcoming in the beginning. Sometimes some people are not forthcoming in the beginning, not because they were involved in a specific crime, but it may be because some people are scared. Some people know they had a little bit of involvement in it, but they weren't really actually involved, and they think they're going to get charged, like I told you about the failure to report and neglect. Mm-hmm. All this stuff was looking at her, you know, and you got – all this MPD brass, you sitting in front of them because top people were investigating this case. FBI was involved in this case. The little boys wasn't involved. The big boys were involved. The National Center of Disability Case, they have an investigative unit. They were involved. Um, so, you know, why people lie, or maybe not, they're not so, I can't say a lie, but they're just not forthcoming. Maybe they're misleading. Maybe they change their stories up which is equates to, you could call it a lie, you could call it not being truthful, um, for many different reasons. And we we can't really say, it wouldn't be wise to speculate and say why. Why? Or we can look at the action. We can see their actions. We know that they don't jive up. We know that something is not, something is not right with this case. Um, but what? No, and I can tell you as to the question of could she have possibly been sold? That's all. That's always a possibility. But based on information we've gathered so far, the police department and the National Center Missing Sporty Kids and the FBI have came back and said that they don't have anything to support an allegation of her being sold. You know, actually being sold, trafficked, you know, or exploited in some way. They just know that the relationship with Felicia Rudd, an eight-year-old, and a man over 52 years old is not her father, is very suspicious. You know, to see her going into a hotel room with a man that's not her father, alone, uh, in itself is suspicious. You know, um... It just it is it don't look right. It's not normal. But when we go back to the family dynamic, when we really examine the generational struggle of not just their family, I'm speaking for a lot of families, this is what you get. And there were early signs, as I said before in many other interviews, there were early signs, early warning signs that something needed to be done you know, with this family that in terms of help, in terms of support, 
in terms of wraparound services. And this is what I'm really focusing in on in honor of Rulish Rudd, because we, in our lifetime, may not be able to find religion. I do believe we're going to hold somebody accountable for this at some point in time. We may not necessarily find her, you know, in our lifetime. At some point in time, it'll be forensic science that probably cracked this case or somebody, a witness will come forward with some information that cracked the case wide open. Um, but I'm always hopeful that the case will be solved. But if I look at the odds, you know, that's just how I think uh, in terms of, of, of certain aspects of case closure. But Relisha Rudd's case is just a case where there's no, you know, when you when you have a homicide, you got a body there, you know, the coroner can come in and tell you an approximate time of death. You can establish a timeline. You can subpoena, you can gather up associates, business associates. You can gather information. You can ask people where they were at a certain time, and you can account for them. But when there's no concrete timeline, it's a big spew, a big web of a lot of this and that. This said that, this one said that, that one said that. And that those are all their accounts, okay? But this, that's all we really have. At this point, we do have some forensic documents, and we have some stuff that we they're probably looking at. But in terms of statements, you know, of of, of you know people who were, were charged with responsibility for Relisha Rudd, uh, all those statements are contrasting, you know, and 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 different, you know, at various points in time. As you mentioned, and you asked the question about mid part of of March, a call from Relisha Rudd. I this is the first time I heard that uh was on the interview with Shandrea Thomas. That was the first time I ever heard of in the middle part of March, um somebody making contact with Relisha via phone, telephone. That's the first time. You know, when you was that? It, um this was when Shandrea Thomas did an interview with, with Melissa Young. This is the first time we had ever ever heard of that that conversation. Yeah, we was... touched on that. Mm-hmm. So I don't um, know if you've heard think... it, but she actually elaborated on the content of the call a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the first time we ever heard of it. So as I said to you before, you know everything is changing. You know, whenever you have a human account, they'll have a human account for something. You know, you can't say you lie, but prove it. Can you prove she lied? Do you know she didn't talk to her? Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. Who knows? You know, who knows what happened? This is a this is a real whodunit. This is a real nightmare for an investigator. Um, and I talked to Mitch Creedle, who's um, retired from out of the homicide unit, and uh, he just looked at me when we talk about this case and just shake his head because it's one of those cases where we have a, this picture this now, an eight-year-old child. The last person that was seen with her is dead. His wife is dead. And she's nowhere to be found. He always mm-hmm. said to himself, did he take the secrets to his grave? Is he the only person that knew? I beg to differ. I have hope. 
that, that, that on the principle of nothing happens in a vacuum. It's an investigative clause we use because nothing happens. Somebody saw something. There's some trace of, of information that we haven't found yet. And so we have to stimulate the conversation, keep the conversation going. Also stimulate people to soul search and think about what they know about this case or what they know in general. Um, we have to continue to try new uh, uh, use new investigative tools to, to help with recollection of events. You know, there's various forensic sciences now that's being used to help people recall what went on. Um, you know, there's, like we talked about the lie detector test, which is really not admissible in court, but it is a tool that investigators use to see which direction they're going to go. And if you pass the polygraph, they usually, uh, that usually will usually cause them to look. It don't really exonerate you, but it just causes them to say, well, maybe not. The guy passed the test. He, it's hard to pass a lie detector test. It can be done now. You can cheat the test. Um, that's always a possibility, but very rare that people can go in and they can just lie like that calmly and just lie. You know, most people usually on a certain question or something like that. So there are certain members of the family who did take the polygraph and the lie detector test that went on the lie box and passed it. But um, I just, I know that, um, I, I, you know, I really can't speak for family. I can't speak for anyone else. But I know I did hear the family say that some things about him seem fishy and suspicious. But, you know, Sometimes you trust people, you know, and I think that um, for whatever reason, okay, they trusted him a little too much. Now, I don't know what that is. We, we speculate. We say, oh, it could have been they get money. We say oh, various things, for, you know, nefarious things that could have been going on, but we can't prove that. We have no proof to, to, to prove that, so I avoid saying it. But those are all still possibilities that we're not going to ignore or turn away from. The fact it could have been, militia could have been trafficked by whomever. We don't know who was involved, who knew what. It's always a possibility. But at this point, they've basically said they don't have any indication yet that militia was trafficked. I think it was a pool mm -hmm. party you mentioned. You know, militia went to the pool party and, you know, it was a, supposedly, allegedly a fake pool party, according to the statements. We realized, kind of realized that maybe there probably wasn't no pool party. But we realized all this, I think the family did in hindsight. I think they always kind of looked, you know, they kind of looked fishy-eyed at it. But I think it dawned on them later, all the stuff that we know. All the stuff really dawned on us. After the fact, 18 days later, you know, I think it could have been. Some people feel like Willisha Rudd was missing longer than that, but at the least 18 days that we know of, um, that's a lot of time when a child is in harm's way, possibly unaccounted for. An hour, two hours is a long time. So you can imagine. 18 days 
before law enforcement really got a risk that something was wrong. And mm-hmm. I told you about the early triggers in terms of CFSA, which is the primary investigative agency on, you know, they look out for the welfare of children, child and family services. They have trained investigators who investigate abuse because this is, is, is a specialty type investigation. There are thresholds, and they do this all the time. And they report in the MPD if a crime has been committed. They submit all that data to um, Youth and Family Services Division. They're um, investigators, and they take it on up to the, if it goes up to the district attorney or whoever, they look at it and decide whether legal proceedings is going to start and criminal charges or whatever is going to take place. But that trigger, I, I know I forget what the trigger is, how many days, but I just think it's too many days before you even started the investigation. Now, during the investigation, you're getting runarounds, people not home, you know, you know, people giving you a fake note. And this one, you know, don't play with me. This is part of um, the legislative reform that many had introduced, uh, a group had introduced, which I think is still needed. And, and I, you can always put this on record. I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm, I mean it, because I'm really upset about it, that our legislators got time to come up with legislation to bail out the go-go community and give them relief, which I'm, I'm all for go-go, and I'm proud that they got it. I'm thankful. But why can't you do the same damn thing for Relisha Rudd, a child? What? I mean, we know that there are problems within our system. And Relisha mm-hmm. Rudd was that red flag. I mean, no matter of fact, Richard Rudd was a daggone colossal era. I mean, I mean, this was worldwide. This was all over the whole country. And we look bad as a community, as a government agencies look bad. Law enforcement, they felt bad because we failed. And to add more insult, you can go it on and put it on down there, on, on, on the, wherever you're recording that. We don't even, we appear as though, because I go by asking, that we don't care enough to do what's necessary to talk about this and have a real in-depth conversation because children can't think for themselves at this level. It is a mm-hmm. monumental failure. I told you we all look bad. The community looks bad. Law enforcement, we look, they look bad. You know, um, if I was a government agency, I would, I would feel bad about it, too. The point that would move me into action, that would move me into action to sit down and look at this every step of the way and talk about, because people would have autonomy to fix this, the director of child and family services. There are things you cannot say as an employee of the city that I was able to during the podcast, and this is some of the things that we talked about in that regard. As you dug into the case and told us that they were responsible to do thorough background checks and people with certain kinds of felony convictions should not be around children and vulnerable members of society. They Mm -hmm. weren't even supposed to be there. So when I tell you we all failed, I I mean it. Because before this happened to me, I was just as it's just as blind as the rest of the general public is. 
I took no interest in it. I, I saw it a little bit, and I went on about my way until it happened to me. So as 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 investigators, as advocates, as podcasters, as news officials, media officials, we got to turn the volume up, you know, um, on this case and never forget it. As a matter of fact, um, a monument should be for Relisha Rudd, just as it is in, in, I think, in Atlanta, you know, because this is so monumental. It's a big part of D.C. history. It's something you should learn from and never forget. The only time we learn something is when we get hit with a million-dollar lawsuit. We put drastic measures in place to prevent it from happening again. Look at the police departments throughout the country when they get hit with a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollar lawsuit. They put, they fire people. People get replaced. They, they want, they start with new initiatives, you know, and that's great. But that's what we should be doing here in D.C. You know, um, I think you asked me about what was another question about, um, you know, just alerting the police, you know, after they knew that this. Um, party was probably fake you know as i told you before we deal with things differently you know people deal with things differently people are very apprehensive about even getting having any involvement with the police department at all you know i mean i'm serious i mean that a lot of people we just we're different you know i was listening to a boxer from new york zab judah just talk about how he was robbed and he the police came, but he didn't go to court or nothing. He handled it on his own. And that's just how some people from different upbringings and thought process, how they deal with stuff. Is it right? The right way? No. The right way is you notify law enforcement immediately. And this is what I've been pushing, too, to be corrected, is that we have to let people know when you know there's something not right, you don't have to wait two days or a day or 48 hours or whatever, the, what the movies say in the movies, I wait 48 hours, this type of stuff. You can report it in D.C. immediately. You know, it's not enough education um, in terms of um, uh, missing persons, you know, and the community in general. Because I get calls, you know, about what to do from families. You know, their loved one is missing. So um, there's many different answers to that question. Only they can answer it, though, the family, why. I could just tell you my best get. I was talking to you about, you know, some people in hindsight, I mean, they, they're ashamed. They're hurt. I mean, they they look at it and say, my child is gone. You know, they're going to get me. You know, they're going to lock me up for, for this. They're going to find a way to lock me up. And so sometimes it's deserving, sometimes it's not. Whatever the case may be, people, some People have a tendency under pressure to not be forthcoming with law enforcement. We've seen it so many different times. It's not always um, a sure sign of just plain flat-out guilt and involvement. But I know something is not right. And those are just my guesses, you know, of why, you know, initially. And investigators will echo the same thing, that they thought, you know, that, you know, your child missing, you know, do you think law they're going to charge you. They're going, to, they're going to hem you up and charge you with something because you should have known. You should have knew your child was missing. You should have reported them missing. But, you know, in D.C., there's no reporting requirements for minor children. 
as in other states, like in Maryland, it's 48 hours, um, within 24 hours, I'm sorry, of knowing uh, for, for minors under the age of 13. And I think it's 48 hours for anyone who's over, who's 18, or who's over 13, you know, 13 and up. I think they, you know, consider them a little older. But um, it's requirements there, whatever the specifics are, it's requirements there. There's nothing, there was no law on the books to charge anybody with in that regard. So um, we don't have any of those tools to use. And when I say charge people, that don't necessarily mean you're going to lock them up. You may send mm-hmm. them the first time to um, work with us, to make them work with us and see what happens. Make them get out and look for some missing children that have not been reported. I'm, I'm saying progressive discipline is what I'm saying. I don't necessarily mean, you know, we're going to make this a felony offense. Because, um, you know, black people catch felonies so quick. I knew in a city like D.C. where the narrative, the political narrative is on the left side, it's more to the left, and they're very apprehensive about um, felony, giving people felony offenses and creating legislation that's going to do that. But I do believe that if um, a child, due to the parent's failure to report, um, suffered some type of severe trauma, then that is a felony. You gonna, I'm going to hit you in the head, but maybe just the first time. But we don't have any of this in D.C., is my point. We don't have any of those tools to use. You can lie to an investigator doing a missing person's investigation, and the likelihood of something really happening it's very small. We don't have any of those tools. But those are tools where people all of a sudden, you know, you're doing an investigation, and people know if they lie to you that there's a consequence. They're a little more apprehensive about lying because it's a consequence. You can tell people I'm going to put you in jail if you, if you lie to me. But in this case, we didn't have that investigative option to say that. And so it was just basically a lot of talking, a lot of this, a lot of that, this one saying that, that one saying that, and it never added up to nothing uh, consistent or substantial. So in the end, this is where we are um, with Relicious Case, you know. One thing I kept getting, mostly from the family, there was a lot of misconceptions about how Khalil Tatum died without compromising case integrity. What can you definitively tell us about his death? Well, the official report, which everybody has read, is that Khalil Tatum um, was found um, in the Kenilworth Park area with a uh, fatal gunshot wound, uh, self-inflicted to the head. And that was the... You know, the the cause was a gunshot wound. The manner was, was suicide, which was the coroner ruled it as a suicide. That's what's formally out there. And and evidently, you know, you got trained uh, detectives, death investigators to come out. And they look at a lot of stuff. Take, and, and in conjunction with the coroner, they come up with a manner, I mean, a cause and a manner of death. And... Um, 
that's what they came up with, the cause as being a gunshot wound and the manner being suicide. It wasn't ruled a homicide. Um, okay. Some people appear to know a lot, but they have heard hearsay. You know, nothing definitive. They didn't look at no coroner's report, and they didn't see no autopsy. They didn't see no toxicology reports. Now, I know for a fact none of the death investigators down the NPD gave that information about the specifics of his manner of death. I know that. They won't. They won't. They're not. This is open. You don't want to give stuff up like that, you know. Um, That stuff is important Um, when you start looking at the motive behind all of this and a lot of different theories as to what could have happened to Relisha Rudd. That's, That's serious stuff. And that's those are specifics that, you know, a lot of investigators won't go into. Most of the information that we'll give up is in order to get something back, we'll tell the public about a car, the make of the car, you know, because we want somebody to see that car. So we'll let certain things out there, you know. Um, and then it's um, official. Sometimes there's court documents that, that the news go and pull that could be inaccurate in terms of, you know, specifics. Those are just court records, you know. Um, so that's where some of the information that could be coming from, I, don't, I couldn't tell you. But, okay. um you know, it's hard to shoot yourself in the head two times, but not impossible. You could graze yourself. It depends on what you're talking about. So, you know, it is what it it, it is what it is at this point. Um, it was rude to suicide, and okay. that could that would make sense to me. You know, I think that mm-hmm. something was going on with him to cause him to commit suicide and to never return Relisha Rudd. It was something going on that caused him or someone else to kill his wife. Something. We just don't know what it was. He was actually the big topic of questions. So while we're talking about him, I'll just go ahead and, like, hit those. There was one question that, you know, Shamika says she believes Tatum's death was a cover-up. But what what kind of cover-up would it be that, you wouldn't be involved in. Well, okay. Yes, okay, okay. I, I'm going to say this, okay? Make sure you have it on wax. It's a theory. You know, one theory could be that someone killed his wife and someone with knowledge of crime scenes um, could have, this is just a theory, could be involved. Because you got you to gotta investigate out here who are retired or whatever. They know what to do. In terms of trajectory, in terms of the chain, placement of the body. These are theories that the family is probably thinking about that could have been there, you know. It could have been several other things that would motivate, in terms of a motive to want to do this to Khalil Tatum. Is it, this is a theory someone did it to him and his wife. Drugs could have been involved. Relisha Rudd could have been collateral damage. You know, that would be a reason, you know, um, you know, uh, maybe something else was going on in Relisha just happened to be in the midst of it all. And she got killed. The wife knew about it, so she got killed. And maybe possibly, you know, folks out there probably thinking somebody could have did him too. 
you know, I, I myself as as an investor, I'm not, I'm not a criminal investigator, but just being around criminal investigators, I know, you know, these are things that probably were probably thought of or thought about, um, but based on the coroner's report and based on you know the end result of that report. Um, it would lead one to believe this is a suicide that he killed himself, and that someone, um, uh, someone else didn't do it because it had been homicide, been ruled as homicide. As I told you, you know, placement of your body, you know, all this stuff that we not we, we won't talk about is how they got to mm-hmm. that point where they ruled it as a a suicide. You know, we got the best now. I'm gonna tell you that, and we have some of the best people. The best investigator. We got a monster homicide unit. Young guys. I mean, they don't even wash their behind. They going four and five days straight, no sleep, and they they know what they know, and they they do this um, for a living. We got an excellent coroner's office who gave us the the determination, the manner and cause of death, the cause and the manner of death. So we got to go with that until somebody else come in and review it. And we have some other reason to believe anything else. That's what the final verdict is. I mean, because, you know, I'm not a professional. I can't say with medical certainty. Yeah. So we got to go with the professionals. And I know it's a lot of uh, people who, who look at this thing so many different ways. And it's just fishy, man. This is a, it is so aggravating. It is so. It is a beast. It, it, it's, it's because it's. It's a child, and we know that Relisha Rose got done. She, they did her dirty. She went around some people that she trusted. And in the end, she turned out missing. And I got two dead people sitting over there that we still, we, we got an idea. They think that Khalil Tatum shot his wife and himself. And obviously, they have reason to believe that. You know, uh, you can't charge mm-hmm. and try a dead man. He's gone. Yeah. So, and with all the other information, he took all of that with him. So usually, as I told you in earlier, that we can usually interview a suspect. You can interview him. You can sit down with him and talk to him and use various methods to get the truth. But in this case, the prime suspect is Khalil Tatum in the disappearance of Alicia Rudd, not the mother. He was the prime suspect that they believe was responsible for her disappearance. So uh, really examining his lifestyle, his acquaintances, would tell us a little more about um, Alicia Rudd's disappearance and the timeline of See, that's the thing about it. It's just, you know, you basically going from March the 18th or March the 1st all the way up to the 18th. And some investigators are probably going back before then as to figure out what was going on at that time to cause the little girl to supposedly disappear and vanish into thin air, which none of us know that ain't, that don't happen. Kids don't just that, just vanish. They don't just up and out of nowhere get here. So they don't leave that way either. So um, with all that being said, somebody is accountable for Melissa Rudd's disappearance. And who that is, we still don't know yet. But I think it's just a matter of time 
you you did touch on this. Um, but they asked, has anyone ever considered that Tatum might not be the bad guy? Maybe he was taking care of Alicia. He learned too much about something, became scared, so then he killed his wife and himself, or you know he got killed and so did his wife because of what they had learned. Yes, yes, that's always and, a you know, or they knew they were in danger, so they went ahead and like kind of offed themselves before it could go yeah, wrong. Yeah, it, it it all goes back to the motive of why he killed himself. Those are all theories that could have uh, happened. You know, I, you know, why he did it, why this happened to Richard Rudd is the million-dollar question because the person that we need to interview is gone. They're, we can't talk to him. Just like, you know, when you ask me about something of the family, why did they, why did they do this or do that? I can speculate. I can guess. I couldn't speak for him. Like, I couldn't speak for him. And if you're were, mm-hmm. you weren't a direct eyewitness, you can't speak to no, that situation with no real facts and substance. You can only give a, a hypothesis of what could have happened. And everything you just said about uh, as a motive to for a person to commit suicide, there's so many different motives or reasons why they do it. And that's one of them. Maybe something was going on with him and Relisha and his wife found out, you know, and he killed himself. He didn't want nobody to know. We just don't know. But to the to the to the to the questioner, that's how I would answer it. That's that's a a a reasonable, uh, logical uh motive to, to to commit suicide, you know. Some people commit for for different reasons. It could be something petty and they kill itself. Well, you wonder why they kill itself. But, you know, I mean, I think it was something serious, though. I don't think this is nothing petty that happened. I think it was something serious going on, and he took his life, you know. And all these are things that probably, probably more than likely was probably the reason why he did it. Something inappropriate was going on with him and Alicia. Maybe somebody else killed him and killed her. These are all things because there was something bigger going on. Maybe drugs, you know, maybe hauling drugs or something. I don't, you never know. He could have been very well been taking good care of Alicia. Could have been a good dude. But at that time, I don't know what was going on in his head that make him not bring her mm-hmm. back and to kill his wife and then go kill himself. I don't know what was going on with somebody else that caused him to want to possibly potentially kill the wife and maybe kill Alicia. Maybe he killed himself later. I don't know. It's just so many, so many unanswered questions. I was just about to say, that's one thing that I've noticed with both families, both Tatum's and Relisha's, is, like, I found some interviews from um, Andre that I was able to put into one of the episodes. And um, he, too, believes his uncle was a victim. Oh, he could have been. He could have been, but he's not here to... That's the thing about death. Remind everybody about death. The death, dead person can't talk. That's why they're eliminated. So is that possible? Yes. Absolutely. He could have been a victim in all of this. To a point he took his life, you know. To a point somebody else may have taken his life, you know. So mm-hmm. we have to remain open-minded and we got to take ownership and do what we can do to help solve this case, you know. Um, 
I'll encourage, you know, people to continue to ask questions, to continue to flood the mayor's office, you know, post her uh, email address up, and, and demand that she raise the rewards so we can get these answers, so we can stimulate folks to want to come forward. We get a person on an unrelated charge, and they say they know something about religious real estate, give them some goodies. That's how you get information. There's more than one way to get people to talk. And in, in, you know, in, 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 in the criminal world, you don't talk to the police. And, and most people do it if they got some goodies for them. That's the only way mm-hmm. to you know, you've knocked 10 years off my time. Yeah, I'll tell you about Relisha Road. You send me over here to this penitentiary where my brother's at. Yeah, I'll tell you where, I'll tell you what I know. And that world right there is the world that probably more than likely know about this. You can go in the prison system and find out a whole lot of stuff. You can solve a whole bunch of cases. You get in with somebody who's in the prison system. My aunt, her all of her information is in the, is in the penal system of who did what to her. Guys in there that know, they know who killed my aunt in 1999. They ain't going to talk, but you got to give them something. You got to put it out there that you're going to give them some good stuff, and they'll tell, give you the answer. But I just think that a lot of times people want to forget, and they want to move on, and they don't want answers. And as a community, that's where we come in at. We got to keep pressing them for the information and, and never let the case die, never Settle for that. Never let that that happen. Because the only way it dies if we let it die. We keep protesting, getting in the streets, talking about this, doing whatever little work we can do. Because you know this is a federal investigation. It's not for no small boys. It's a big. This case right here is a is a is a it's wicked, man. It's one of the ones, man. You need sailor data. You need you got to pull all the stops out to get this one. So we need all of the all of the help that we can get on this case, and we need everybody's help. People to keep an open mind. People are entitled to be mad. They're entitled to you know have their feelings and their suspicions about certain people. But we got to get to a point where we we are so committed to case closure and committed to being of service to Alicia Rudd. Then that's when we'll really get the the results and not take stuff personal. Mm-hmm. When people ask a question or they have their theories or their strong convictions about the case, because they're entitled to that. And some people think the mama didn't get them, but they're entitled to that. But the question I always ask people is, what, where has that gotten us? So let's just change up and switch the narrative. That hasn't gotten yeah, us very I mean, far. That's getting old. We've been saying that for, what, five, six years now. Mm-hmm. All of a so, sudden, you know, Shamika down. That's what it's going to do, and it, the detectives are working hard to develop a rapport with her, and they're really making a lot. We got an excellent investigator on this, a senior detective on this, 47 years of experience, doing a good job with Shamika. He's trying to get her to, to know he's not out to get her. He's not trying to jam her up so she'll talk to him. Because some of the truth does probably, or could, let me say could, subconsciously lie with her. And it's the lack of trust, the lack of, of, of people feeling that you're legit. See, a legit investigator, you know, they're going to help you to get to where he needs to be so he can help himself. You know, he's not going to come at you hard. He's going to find the sweet spot to find out where, where, how can I get you to talk and move this forward, even if you are guilty. This is sad. This is a sad circumstance. 
in our history in D.C. So some of the other questions somebody asked, the shovel and the lie. Do okay. they have the shovel that he was supposed to have used and purchased? And if they do, were any soil tests done on the shovel to pinpoint where she may have been buried? Well, soil is just soil, but it's not just soil. There are um, forensic sciences that can tell where a certain set of soil came from, but you got to have a sample to compare it to. Meaning you have to have a known area that you know about that you suspect it came from to compare it to. Okay, to that makes sense. If it, if it was. Now, as far as those other specifics, I'm not even going to make any comment on any of the other um, uh, forensic, the other uh, evidence or things that were collected and gathered. I'm just going to take through the okay. fifth on that. That is your right. Something else somebody asked is, you know, is there any videos of Relisha leaving the hotel room? Is there a video of a man okay. leaving, and did he have a suitcase? There's additional. Left? There's always additional footage. I'm gonna say that there's always additional footage. Okay, now I'm not saying whether it was her in it, who was in it, but I'm gonna say this to you: it was additional footage, but it has not been released to the public as a matter of case integrity, and there's a reason they haven't released it yet. But there is footage. There is footage. There's always footage, because those cameras go, you know, days and days and hours and hours over there at the hotel. Yeah, I mean, that actually is kind of something else somebody asked, was how come in the District of Columbia we have cameras all over the district, but all of these missing people? Well, we use those cameras. We do have cameras, and we have utilized surveillance, the cameras. MPD has cameras and hotspots. We've used those cameras, you know, and those cameras are mm -hmm. a little more, uh, uh, they can, they have a better density to them. You can see a little more clear in some of them. A lot of the video footage that our general public is seeing is privately owned surveillance equipment, which is not so great, you know, because they don't put a lot of money into it. So you, you on your speed light camera, you know, you take your car speeding and the electronic camera take a picture and it can see your license plate clear, that's because they've invested money in that, big money to get high resolution on it. But the other footage that there are people who are probably saying, oh, they, can, they can see your license plate, but they can't see. They got these fuzzy pictures of, of criminals when we commit a crime. Somebody commit a crime. That's because some of that footage is from apartment owners who own the apartments and they'll put some video surveillance equipment up and it may not be the best. And that's why we get those variations in the quality of the footage, but it's always footage around. They correct. It's always footage. We got so many cameras in DC and we do use those cameras. I know when we work investigations and they're known to be in a given area, we will go back to the cameras and MPD management, they do have access to those cameras. They can go and pull up a certain camera at a certain location. They can review the footage. They can look at it to see if that missing person was actually in that area and what time. They can look over a certain a number of days to see how many times if they're frequenting that area. So the cameras are being used. You know, I, I gave another case in point of the technology that's used, like in Marty McMillan's case. You know, we used um, 
license plate readers to pinpoint the time his car was moving in a given location. And then the person of interest had on a GPS monitoring system, which was parallel to the same time that his car was seen traveling in the same direction. So we were able to put him there in the same location as the car was. We couldn't prove he was in it, but just a piece of information and a tidbit on the technology. And, I, and D.C. famous for using technology now. They use the technology. So it's there, and we do use it. Um, I don't know what people see in the closure rate in D.C. on homicides, but it's for the number of homicides that we have, for the number of violent crimes that we have, um, we've got a pretty good closure rate, you know, um, you know, for the percentage of, of, of death, property deaths that we have, you know, violent crimes, you know, you know, robbery, force and violence. Somebody may push some woman down and take her first. They get caught on the on the camera, and we put it out there, and you'd be surprised people call in, you know, for that ten thousand or whatever it is. So um, to speak to the tools, these are all the tools that you see me talking about on social media, the various tools that we use, and they're using them. So to that to that questioner, you can tell them we're using them. And, and they can go right to MPD's Twitter site, and you'll see all these photos of people up there who are in somebody's <laughs> house, creeping around. And you get good photos, too. I mean, you can look right at them. If you know them, you'll know who it is. So um, <laughs> they're using the cameras, but sometimes, as I told you before, some of the cameras are not really putting out good quality images. You know, um, I think that the reward um, system in D.C. is good on all homicides. You know, that's another tool. The reward is a tool to get usable information. Uh, the twenty-five, the normal $25,000 reward is, is, is available to all homicide victims and families whose uh, homicide occurred during a non-felony activity. I mean, like you just walk into the store and you get killed you're eligible for it. But now if you was in the commission of a felony, you're not you're not eligible for the twenty five thousand dollar reward. Your your case isn't, you know, because you were committing a felony. So D C, you know, they got a lot of different tools and a lot of stuff, but but this is something else um that's important when you talk about the community being involved, um, and doing what they can do in terms of investigations. Community can be so helpful and doing just what they're doing, sharing her images, keeping it out there, you know, pressing our elected officials to raise the reward, you know, continuously demanding answers for for Relisha Rudd and most all of our cold cases, you know, continue to do that. And um, in door-to-door is something. That's a beast. If you go door-to-door, you'll win the war. That's like an investigative uh, clause we use because, when you're going door to door, you're putting a certain kind of energy into something, you know, with the flyer and the photo. And that's old-fashioned detective work. That's old-fashioned neighborhood canvases where you're going door to door. Because at some point, you may went to a house and that house may be closed. People may not be home. But the next time you come, or maybe the next time you come, they may be there. They be, may be just that one family that knew something that otherwise probably wouldn't came forward. So these are all tools, though, um, you know, the canvassing, you know, the, the media relationships, having relationships with the media to keep them 
engaged on the case. And they've been real helpful here in D.C. as far as Militia Rudd's case. Um, there's other national organizations that we can reach out to, like the National Center of Missions for the Kids. We work with them on religious case all throughout the year and on Militia Rudd Day. So it's just a lot. It's a lot, and it's a lot of questions. It's one that you answered really well, that, um, it was in, but it was in text form. It was the question about um, why doesn't anyone want to admit if they were the last ones to have Relisha? Okay. Well, you know, you look at why would somebody want to admit they were the last person with a homicide victim? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, nobody I mean, really wants to admit that. <laughs> Who want to admit that? You know, I no, had yeah. a last. People saying that's their, that's her child. She should be wanting to say, okay, I had a last. Yeah. This and that happened. That's how normal people, you got to remember the dynamic of this family. They were living in a homeless shelter. There were all these different reports and allegations of neglect and abuse and domestic violence, substance abuse, and you had all that rolled up in there. And then at the end, this is what you usually come up with sometimes when you let things go too far, and we let this go way too far with religious tapes. That's what happened, and this is what usually is the end outcome, is you have a missing person's event or some kind of tragedy in the end. Forget about uh, people's uh, uh, status in the city, you know, who they are and their reputations. You throw all that out the window, you know. When you pull a religious picture up and you look at her face and you realize it's a child. I got a daughter that's 14, you know, and I, you know, I'd be the first one to tell you I had a last, and this is what happened. I mean, you know, and that's just how normal people d- react and respond. And I'm not saying they're abnormal. I'm saying their circumstance has been abnormal. Their life, yeah. lifestyle was abnormal. Did you ever notice some guys normally, you know, you have an incident with something happened, they call the police. Even guys my age, younger. But then you have some people, they don't call no police. They find out who it was and they go handle it. So some mm-hmm. people deal with stuff differently, you know. They deal with stuff differently. But what happens if a case is out of Metro PD's hands, as this one kind of was? As far as our selected officials and our legislative body, Put them all on Front Street. These people keep talking about the police department. You know, the police department, this police, but no, it, it's beyond the police department. It's, it was beyond MPD. This thing had got so far out of hand before it even got to MPD. And until we go back to the legislative stuff and get that straight, we're, not, we're still going to be spinning our wheels again when this happened again. This is going to happen again. It's a matter of when. You know, why was she out from school for so long? The trigger for truancy, I think, I'm not sure. I think it's five consecutive days. I only want to quote it, but it's rounding there somewhere before CFSA will get involved. The schools have to notify CFSA. Too much time went by. That's too much time. Your kid don't mm-hmm. come to school in four days. You should be up here, you know, giving us something substantial, and we're not going to take any. It should be guidelines on that. The guidelines need to change on that. Because who do you kids spend the most time with? They spend the most time in school and with mm-hmm. their peers in school. So they see them more sometimes than the parents do. Uh, another one was, do law enforcement officials think she's alive or dead? I don't know if you can comment on this. Well, uh, they have commented on many different occasions. And 
in their opinion, most of them said this is probably a, a recovery effort. You know, most law enforcement officials um, look at the case and dynamics surrounding it, how he took his life, he did, and we can't find her. So I'm not going to say that they think she did, but I'm just going to say that they, it's a probability, a high probability. Some of them think that she's gone. They're more than likely yeah, I mean, killed. Looking at the evidence you have and what has happened, it makes sense. Former police chief Kathy Lanier always said, we think this is going to be a recovery effort when they were doing their searches. So, you know, that's just a thought. So, that was, those were her thoughts based on what she was okay. seeing about the case. So, One person said, I think it's more important to focus on CFSA. Those of you guys who don't know it, it's um, Child Family Services Agency. They were saying that it was more important, they thought, to focus on that aspect of it and why they never get mentioned. And, I mean, it's kind of a decent question because Child Family Services had been called to the family a few times before Relisha went missing. Well, that's all part of, you know, the city, you know, not really wanting Mm -hmm. to take full accountability of, 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 you know, not necessarily negligence, but just loopholes in their system and correct them, you know. Um, so Child and Family Services, that agency, you know, I don't really think it's, it's them per se. I, I think it's more of a policy type thing. I think it's a more of a legislative thing. I don't think it's necessarily a real problem with them, the agency, but I do think that we need to be lobbying for them as far as their investigators, as far as um, all the triggers that should be shut off. You know, we got our triggers are far too long before a trigger is activated, you know, to even start yeah. investigating. And then once they start investigating, you know, you, your child and family services investigators, you know, they that's serious, but a lot of people don't take it serious. They don't really take it serious. You see how serious they took them? They gave them a note, a fake note. They sent the school a fake note, you know. Uh, they several people were interviewed by child family services, but they don't take them serious because what can you do to them? They say screw you, arrest me, yeah. or, or or just get on out of here. Let me out of here. So people are uncooperative, you know, with with those agencies. You know, I, that's just how I feel. You know, it's it's a lot that needs to be put in place to really help improve, not to. To, to to degrade the agency or 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 say somebody was negligent within the agency. I just think it's a lot of loopholes within the legislative system and our policies uh, surrounding uh, truancy and stuff like that that led to this getting to the point of where it is now. Okay, and during the process, I actually learned something. I'm not sure if you told me or Melissa told me or both of you guys. But was somebody said there was actually a girl that went missing from the shelter before Relisha, and I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find any information on it. That should have been more of a real, like more of a red flag. Yeah, it should. Be. Well, you see, this has happened, and and it never it, it it's not moving people into action into a place of resolution. You know, a place of, of of wanting to to make sure this don't happen again. Still, really happened. 
you know. Whenever something's dark about a city, you know, we shy away from talking about it. The gentleman you talked to, the reason why I referred you to him, because from 1987 to 1996, I wasn't here in D.C., but he was an actual homicide detective doing our most violent time. So it was a very dark part in D.C.'s history. So D.C. had a tendency to not want to talk about it. So guess what he did? He's doing a documentary on 12 Years in Hell, which is it, it's highlighting D.C.'s darkness. That's a part of our history, you know. And they don't really want to mm-hmm. talk about that either. All the unresolved homicides between um, 1989, 88 to uh, 91 or 94. You got so many homicides, it's unresolved. It was so bad here. They had to bring the FBI in to help us because they were just overwhelmed with cases. So whenever you see people not really talking about something, that's because they really kind of wanted to just go away and just, you know, not that aspect. They don't want to talk about it. People are, they feel under pressure. And I never try to create that environment where in a case like this with public safety, put people under that kind of um, thought. I want to come across to be corrective, to save lives, because that's what public safety is about, people's safety. Safety of your kids, you know. Um, a lot of egos get involved when you do that. Whenever your ego is involved, you lose sight of the fundamentals of investigating. When your ego get involved, you know, or your mm-hmm. emotions and stuff, you know, you you know, the people, you know, the director, I know the director of child and family services personally, you know. I, I don't want to come and, because I know an excellent director, but we are failing because we're not putting it to them in a way in which mm-hmm. um, they have to change some stuff and really look at some stuff and show us the results. You know, show us that there's continuity with all the agencies. There's a Department of Behavioral Health. There's a Department of Child and Family Services. So many different, but there's no real, um, from what I can see, continuity with those agencies. The Metropolitan Police Department, you know, you, you know, you have a lot of, um, from what I, this is just what I think. I know I can tell you this from a legislative standpoint and a law enforcement standpoint, you would think that those two agencies would work together. But I really think that the legislative body is immune to the needs of the police department, our primary law enforcement agency. They need help to to make sure that it's law and order, that, that, that mm-hmm. justice is being served. But you see a battle sometimes going on with them. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Somebody commit a homicide. We arrest them first-degree murder. They're 17 years old. We let them out the next day with, on a no-bond status, on their own reconnaissance. First-degree murder. That's not helping because he's going to go terrorize the whole community, threaten witnesses, and your law enforcement agency is telling you this. More homicides are going to occur if he's out. Let's set him mm-hmm. down until his trial date. So that's just an example of how mm-hmm. There, there should be some continuity between our uh, judicial body and the legislative body. 
you know, go down at the court buildings. We see children. This is another thing that ties into this. Constantly chronic runaways. You talked about how Relisha Rudd constantly, they had reports for the family, but you see this, um, it's kind of like a pessimistic approach where, you know, everybody afraid to take some action. Now, I don't mean lock people up all the time, but do something. Put progressive steps in place so when you get those chronic cases where people are constantly found to be neglecting their kids, I'm I'm all in favor of locking you up. Maybe not the first, very first time, but when it's excessive abuse and trauma and what we see with Relisha Rudd, something drastic, yeah. Because if you do that up front, they may not have gotten to this point. Um, we know that that children, we're not helping children if we're locking their parents up. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's why many of our legislators were apprehensive. But what we have to realize is that children have rights, that children deserve justice, that they deserve fair treatment. They don't. They shouldn't be exploited or abused. And it's just real response, their responsibility as elected officials to protect them. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, do I want to lock a parent up? No. But if you're abusive to a child uh, and you... You know, you're extremely abusive to the point where it's a criminal offense with assault on a minor, you know, a minor child. Yeah, lock you up. That's different Mm -hmm. when the evidence is there. But these are all the things that a good legislator who write legislation, this is what they think of. They think of all this stuff and they word the legislation to reflect something fair and equitable to everybody keeping all this in mind. We don't, I don't feel like we have that when it comes to kids. You know, I think they're all interested in their political careers and interested in what's trending. You know, logo music is something that's trending. You know, defunding the police is something that's trending. Is it the solution? No. It's going to kill us. But they into that. That's just the way it appeared to me. Because they jump for that. They In the political bandwagon, they jump right on top of that, you know. But when it comes to something like this, you know, you bring this up, you hear crickets. Uh-huh. You hear crickets, literally. I mean, so, and you got all yeah. these people here who you think will be down, because Richard Rudd was a little black girl. You thought they would be down. They ain't, they got in them positions. They ain't still ain't doing, really ain't, ain't really advocating for her. So it's, it's to me, right, it's, it's frustrating it's, it's shameful on the city that her reward is not seventy five thousand dollars. It's shameful that I have to go and say all of this. And it's not I mean, off the, re- off the record, friend of friend, me and you. Like I'm, I'm going to cut this out. I know we've had this talk before. The whole uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Why don't Why don't they pick up on stuff like Relisha? You can put this on tape. On I don't. I you know. This has been a question of all of ours. You know, um, I know they have their agenda. You know, they have their, you know, focus, scope, you know. And the term Black Lives Matter is something that I believe in. I believe that Black Lives Matter at all times. If it's a police officer, mm-hmm. if, it's a, if it's a white person killing a black person, if it's a black person killing a black person, if it's whoever, Black Lives Everyone Matter. Everyone matters. 
Everyone matters. Did you, now you, I, I, and that's what I mean. I, I really mean that. But but more importantly, I do get, and I understand why we had to say it. The fact that mm-hmm. we had to say our lives, the Black Lives Matter, should be an indication that there is something wrong. But now we can't just say Black Lives Matter when a police officer, a white police officer, or a police officer kills somebody. We got to say mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter at all times. Your life matter to me. I mean, white people, the Korean, I don't care who they we all. When, when you believe out there, you're going to believe what I believe. You, somebody, yeah, somebody, I mean. When I say I'm, I'm, I'm understanding and I'm a black man, I'm cognizant of the injustices towards black people at the hands of law enforcement, people that they trusted to take uh, ownership of their their public safety. I, I it, 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 uh, good law enforcement officers, when they see it all, oh, they live it, and they embarrass and they hurt when they see it. They see an officer, you know, do something that's unbecoming of an officer to the point where they took somebody's life or they beat somebody or stood on a dude's mm-hmm. neck for eight minutes. I mean, come on, you hear him hollering. Mm-mm. He can't breathe. Okay. You know, I mean, so so black lives matter. I'm going to say it, but it matters at all times. Not only do black lives matter, you know, not only. That's what I mean when I say you you, you can't. I mean, you ask me why don't they pick up on this stuff when we ask the same question. <laughs> but only they can answer that because I don't know. I mean, you know, why they don't pick up on it and why they haven't um, saw this little girl and said, hey, look, this administration, which I don't get with Kamala Harris. She's really coming to office, and she she mindful of, of, of tough legislation, and she, she'll get with them. She'll get with us, and we'll, we'll, we'll accomplish something um, if she's elected. Because she, all the stuff we're talking about, about truancy, she had put some mm-hmm. legislation in place about truancy. And I think some of the instances that are quoted were stretched way out of proportion about uh, the ramifications of that legislation. You got to write common sense legislation. You got to think about a whole lot of different scenarios. You got to bring all the experts and people, regular citizens in to weigh in when you write the legislation. That's when you come up with good legislation effective. You know, you got to look mm-hmm. at best practices around the country when you write a piece of legislation to come up with something. But doing nothing is not an answer. It, this this stuff warrants attention. It warrants more time because it's serious. We've seen the, the, the repercussions of it. If you was talking about advocacy and Black Lives Matter, yes, Black Lives Matter. I'm down with that. I get it. I really get it. But why they don't uh, respond to this stuff and why they don't pick this up? It's trendy to jump on the race bandwagon. That's trendy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always easy to talk about what the white man ain't do for me. My great grandmother was white. Okay, I you know I I can't discriminate what's a part of me. I'm gonna tell you that now. I'm black. But I, I love my great-grandmother. That was my great-grandmother. She was a white woman, not no mix. My great-grandfather was black. So 
All this stuff don't matter. And when we had kids, they all still bled the same. So until mm-hmm. we start helping each other, until we start uh, having some humanity and respect for life, period, I wouldn't want to see a white child go through what Relisha Rudd went through. It's no absolutely child unacceptable. What yeah. So, so all this stuff about race is you got to acknowledge race. You have to acknowledge differences, but not to a point where, you know, you find yourself um, being anti-Semitic and, you know, and, 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 and it's always a conspiracy theory on the black man, you know, all of that. And some of, sometimes it is a deliberate conspiracy, but sometimes you've got to take ownership. Because now I'm, I'm in America. I'm going to tell you now, I'm, a, I'm going all the way to the top. I'm going to be what I want to be. I'm going to go as far as I can. All the opportunities are here for me, and I'm black. So we came a long way in this country as far as race relations. Still got a long way to go. But I just think that um, through um, us shining our light, you know, others will see it. And and really race is a, a generational thing. Most of these cats is running around mm-hmm. here as white. Mm-hmm. They some good white boys. Man, they ain't trying to hear none of stuff about no racism. Most of them, most of my police officers now are white boys, and they cool. I call them white boys, but they cool like that. I mean, you, yeah. I've had very, very good experiences with them, better experiences than I've had with some white, some black officers. And and, and, and everybody have their experiences, too. we got to remember that, too. Some people are in areas where there's a lot of racial tension. It don't look good. What's going on in Wisconsin? I saw some officers... Um, with some questions they got to answer. I shot a black mm. man seven times. You know, uh, and yeah, I think I've the, heard about that. The brother was kind of wrong in a sense for opening up the car door and reaching. Because officers don't know what you're going for. And we're out there on a domestic violence call where a fight, a domestic violence had occurred. That's where more officers lose their lives. So you got a lot of officers that are scared. Got a guy officer with a gun, but he's still scared. So he quit. Now he's gonna bust you open if you do anything to move to, to make him think that. And they're a little more prone to do it with black people too, because they're not. Some of them are not. They're not. They haven't been around black people before. So mm-hmm. it's a lot. I now I, I'm gonna tell you something. I, I embrace police reform. I do because I know MPD. I mean, we've been under. DOJ for about a decade now. And since when the first went there, everybody was, oh, hollering, ah, Department of Justice coming in. You know, but we had a certification um, process to, to um, look at our um, general orders and the way in which we handle stuff, you know, use of force, and all of that stuff. And it, it improved. The whole department improved. So, and now that we're under DOJ, you bona fide, you legit, because you're under DOJ. And that's where they're going to take the cases to. So if you follow the guidelines under DOJ, you – and in D.C., I'm going to say this to you, too. In D.C., we, we have cases here of uh, officers um, using excessive force. We do have officers that uh, have physically assaulted people. But it's never been, it's not never, but 
Uh, we have very few cases where an officer um, uh, discharges his firearm and somebody died as a result. Usually it's something justifiable. Uh, we had a lot of cases where the body cam footage had not been released to the public. When the body cam footage got released to the public, there it is. I had a gun. He turned around. He pointed. Officers opened fire. And he, I think one, one kid fired a few shots off. In those cases like that, but the public was in an uproar about it. They really thought that the, the, the brother was, you know, he had been killed by the police and he didn't have a gun. Yes, he had a gun. He had a gun, you know. So it's just sad. Anytime somebody loses their life, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a civilian, it's no winners. Nobody really was 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 exonerated in those video footages because it's, it's horrific to look at, see another person right there lose their life. But you got to remember when you're out here and you're tasked to say you're in a gun recovery unit, which is extremely dangerous, and you walk the 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 line. I mean, the Constitution is right here, and you're walking that line. At various points, you can easily fall on the other side very easily because it's such a high-stress job. You have to get an officer sometimes the benefit of the doubt. It's just it's hard, man. You know, because one, you can lose your life. All your partners can lose their lives. In an instant, because we're dealing with people who got guns, not no little guns, some more 45s and 357s and assault weapons. That's what you're going after. You're going out there to get guns. So law enforcement in general and some of the units that you see around, when you see these videos, I just, I just ask people to not just take the video and run with it. And I say this even when it's a criminal don't just take the video and run with it. You know, it goes both ways. This guy, and I think that's the problem with people. You know, when you start talking about Black Lives Matter, is that the law enforcement agencies and our judicial system is quick to take the video and run with it. But when they come to an officer killing somebody, they saying, hold up, let's put it in context. See? So we can't have two justice systems. Either we're going to use the video footage or we're going to use it for everybody. It's going to be applied the same way. You've got to do that. And I think that's a big – I think people in general – I know I, I've seen how police deal differently with black people than they do with white people. I've seen that. I've seen so many instances where if a black person had done did the same thing, he probably would have been killed as opposed to a white person. But that's just all a matter of what officer was there on that day. I, I got some officers that tell you they make up their mind before they leave the house that they're not going to kill nobody today or at any time. And that's how things turn out. They usually can de-escalate the situation before it gets to that point. Then you got some officers, they're so ready that when something happens, they quit to go for their guns and they quit to shoot somebody. So... We just got to do a better job at um, supporting the police unions because, you know, I mean, not the police unions, police management. Because the union is the one that gives us a hard time trying to get rid of officers, whether they're white or black, when they do something wrong. It's unbelievable how hard it is to get rid of a police officer, whether it be for, when we talk about Black Lives Matter and then we start talking about the technicalities around it, 
You start talking about police policy. You start talking about um, race and color. You know, white officers, black officers. It's hard to get rid of them. It's hard to weed them out before they can do it. Um, you know, because a lot of the, the, the NPD management, they try to weed people out, but the union, they fight them all the way. They file lawsuits and it's awful. So this whole thing of race is far deeper than just the race race itself. You know, when you want to do something about it, when you want to clean up some of these law enforcement agencies, these are the things that Chief uh, Musham and I, we sat and talked about. And he told me all the, the issues he having to get rid of somebody, to fire them, when they're not fit to be an officer, you know, whether they're white or black. Um, but I, I honestly, I really think that um, I think our country is still moving in the right direction. I do. Because now we can no longer hide the fact that white officers are killing black men on the street. You can't hide it with, with George Floyd. Everybody saw that with the advent of cell phones. You know, we used to could mm-hmm. deny it. Now we got to look at it. Now we have to talk about we got to talk about it. People don't look, man. You start talking about black and white stuff. People, all oh, they all are fighting. You know, it's really mm-hmm. not that serious. You know, it's not that serious. But and I think we got a new generation of young people that's coming in that's going to really change stuff um, in terms of, um, like, racial inequality. Because it's, it's, when you talk about racial inequality, you tie it into Mr. Rudd's case, and you know that came up about her being a little black girl and not getting the same mm-hmm. national attention that John Bernay Ramsey got. And I believe it was because she was black. I believe that a lot of agencies, media outlets, didn't bite it nationally like it did uh, when it was a person of another race. I believe the race does play a part in it. Um, well, a lot of just, to your economic standpoint. Economic, social status. If it was Michael Jordan's yeah, daughter I mean, and it was black, it would be all over the news. It would yeah. be everywhere. It would be all over the world because it's social status. So you're correct. Um, and I think that that's a, that was probably even a bigger reason why her case wasn't. Because, you know, her family lived in a shelter. and You know, they wasn't highfalutin and used big words and had a lot of money for attorneys and all that stuff. You know, they that's economic mm-hmm. and social status. I went talked about that in the interview I did somebody, and we talked about um, you know some of the uh, reasons why some cases get publicized and more exposure than others. And social status is probably a bigger explanation than the racial stat. The racial things you got a certain social status, it don't give a damn who you are. You gonna get some, yes, you gonna, I mean. Back to the JonBenet Ramsey thing, she was a from a affluent, well-to-do family. She was a pageant girl. She was well-known in the community. You know, she had the stigma behind her. Then you look at Natalie Holloway, a case that honestly kind of spurred my interest in true crime. Her parents had the money to keep pushing her case. Same with Madeline McCann, which is the little missing girl from the U.K., you know, I mean, heck, if I wasn't missing, my mom wouldn't have the money to fund my case. No, she wouldn't. She wouldn't. And, and a lot of agencies may pick up on it. 
and you may get coverage because you're white, but it's not a guarantee anymore. So I'm glad you brought mm-hmm. that up and reminded me about social status. You know, when it comes to um, that racial question that comes up in Valisha's case about um, her race, the way she looked, her family, her social status. You know, because you, when we want to move and we want to grow, when we put things in context, we grow. When we don't put it in context, we don't get nowhere. So mm-hmm. I just think 10 years from now, I don't think we'll be where we are now in terms of race, you know, in terms of racial indifference. Mm-hmm. We'll continue to move if we continue to put the right leaders in, in the right places. You know, we deal with things legislatively, you know, with those, yeah. those uh, things in place to, to help families to transition out of poverty. Because poverty is the real culprit of all of this. You know, yeah. illness. What, what person you know kidnap a child? Crazy damn person kidnap a child. A person with some serious mental problem. You know, yeah. average people don't yeah. kidnap kids now or, or walk around. I know me. And no eight-year-old better not call me to ask me to go nowhere with me because they're not going. And and, and that's uh-uh. not, and, and, and and I'm not the father. See, yeah. So and we civil people in the right frame of mind know this. So you gotta know there's a little something off with Khalil Tatum. You know, it's got to be because as much as I love kids, you know, sometimes I may want to give a child a quarter or a dollar. I give it to their mother. Give it to their father. Father's not around. I don't give money to kids. You know, you don't take mm-hmm. nothing. I tell my daughter that raised her up like that. You don't take nothing. But Cleo had been doing this. He'd been doing this. And, you know, you look at the family. Yeah. We go back to the the, the um, dynamic of the family, you know, their upbringing, their generational stuff that they had going on. Because, you know, Melissa Young was in the foster care system. She was a foster. She was a foster child. You got generational poverty. She was in the homeless shelter. What chance you think Melissa? I mean, Shamika Young, Ashley Young, or any of them had? Yeah, well, no, Ashley no chance. Yourself, did she? Did she went missing? She was a runaway. Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, and the things that they go through. So, you got to be slow. It's always easy for people to um, make people out to be a villain. It feel good because you're angry about mm-hmm. the case. But when you think of good measure, you think about the ultimate goal and you get focused on your objective or the case and, you know, you see something that needs to be done and you mm-hmm. want to see things change. You have to put all that stuff to the side and anybody that want to work and roll up their sleeves, you have to, you know, galvanize people to do something. Because I'm saying, I'm about to make a lot of noise in a minute. I mean, I have almost um, 10,000 signatures for Relisha Rudd. That's a lot of signatures. And I think I might be able to get up to 20,000. I'm going to have every ANC, every area neighborhood commissioner to sign off on this raising this uh, reward for Relisha Rudd. At bare minimum, they should do that. We shouldn't even mm-hmm. have to ask them for that. My, my city got money, okay? D.C., I mean, the coronavirus hit us pretty hard, but they got it. 
I posted a picture right in Finding Relation where they, this boy got killed, this young man who got killed. I'm glad to see him get the $75,000. He got $75,000. They won his case solved. You know, they his mm-hmm. reward is seventy five grand because it was a shooting here in D.C. where somebody came with an assault weapon at a block party and shot a police officer in the neck. Police officer almost mm. died. The seventeen year old that got the reward out, he died. And there were eleven other people who were shot all at this one event. His reward is seventy five thousand dollars. We had another young person, his reward was fifty thousand dollars. I bet you my last money that that case gets solved. I guarantee it. $75,000, that's a lot of money. You're talking about almost 100 grand. Man, mm-hmm. somebody's going to drop down so quick and see if the family do know something in Valicious' case. Somebody's going to talk. Somebody's going to get that $75,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I'm hopeful. I'm yeah. prayerful. From Monique Smith. She said, once found, what's next? Okay, well, well, Valicia was, if she's found and she's alive, we can get her the services that she needs. We can figure out what, what went wrong with her, what went on. If she's found deceased, her body will present us with so much evidence and so many answers as to her cause and manner of death. If she's deceased, we can we can get a little better idea of what happened to Valicia Rudd. There'll be clues there, forensic stuff that we can use various tools that we can use, you know, to solve her case. So that's why, it's a, and it's always important we can give her a proper, decent burial. So it's all, that's what's next. next. What, what dignity she mm-hmm. deserve? they'll be there for us to, um, to close her case out and, you know, heal from it because the city needs to heal from it. These people, look, they are upset about this, man, in D.C. You bring this up, oh, they live it about Relisha Rudd because they feel as though everybody just turned their back on Relisha, and they feel like we still are. We're still not really doing what we should be doing. So that will bring some some closure. It's never closure, though. I'm going to say that, though. You know, because I knew now I've, my aunt's body was recovered, but there's still no closure. Anybody knew who did it, and I knew why. I already got an idea why they did it, but I don't know who did it. Um, yeah. And still no closure, really, in you know, your heart. You still don't have that closure. But it helped you a little bit to deal with it a little better when you know who did it, why they did it. Um, you know, you can you can begin to heal, and people can feel some form of justice. This is why young people, they take matters into their own hands. They don't even deal. They have no faith in the justice so that that would be a win in another respect too, because you know people can see that the system works. It may be slow. The long arm of the law, as they say, it's slow, but it's steady and it's sure. But the mm-hmm. average person really don't feel like that now, especially a black person. And we really don't. The, our our community don't feel like you know the legal system is for them. They think it's more so. Like we said, for a certain class or certain color of people. So there's yeah. so many reasons why it's important. And and I always ask people too when they ask me that question, what's next? 
if it was your child, what would be next? Would you ask mm-hmm. that question? What would be next? No, you give your child a burial. You grieve over your child. You you would be pressing the envelope with law enforcement to examine her body to tell you what happened to her. That's what's next. All kids need a place to play. If you have any information on Relisha at all, or even think that there is a possibility that you might, please reach out to us. Call Metro PD at 202-727-9099, or you can send a text to the anonymous line at 50411. You may also contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. You may also dial 1-800-THE-LOST. If you do not wish to contact law enforcement directly, please reach out by dialing non-law enforcement at 202-491-2327.